to be able to invest in that generation, isn't it? See them grow up just loving and serving you. So we thank you for the kids in this church. Bless them now in Jesus' name. Everybody said. Thank you. Good stuff. For those that are staying in here, we are going to race through my talk this morning. Is that okay? I tend to go through my talks. Seriously, if you're not going to join in, I'm going to keep going longer and longer and longer and longer. Uh, I tend to run through my talks word for word on like a Saturday night. Cara's downstairs being spiritual, watching the Queen's birthday on the television. And I was upstairs going through my talk and it was 47 minutes. So we'll, uh, we'll, we'll cut out a good portion. Uh, it's the first chance I had to go through it. So we're just going to cut out about 20 minutes and see what happens. But we are in a series uh, where we're essentially going through this book. This book that um, we, we gather around every week and it is, is so important, I believe, that is how God speaks to us. It's how we find out the nature and the character of God. Um, and it is, on the surface, it's 66 books with some 40 authors written over a period of 2,000 years. And shepherds, kings, scholars, fishermen, um, military generals, barmen even helped write this book. Amazing, isn't it? And they just share their experiences, their feelings, and their writing history, poetry, law, prophecy, proverbs. But despite this massive array of authors and period of time and content, there is a flawless consistency within this book. Absolutely flawless. It never contradicts itself because it is ultimately by one author. It is by God who inspired these men and women to write his story. And actually, the cohesive story is that of Jesus, that Jesus sits in the linchpin of history, of his story, that those of the Old Testament, they looked forward to this Messiah, this Savior that was going to come, Jesus. And do you know what we're doing? We're doing exactly the same, just from the other side where we look back and we say, God, come and invade our life with your love, that we may shine your brightness into a dark world. And so we've been uh, doing a series called Connecting the Dots where we've just been taking some grand themes, uh, a way of looking at Scripture with grand stories that, that feed through, and we're doing it in trilogies. So uh, if the next slide comes up, we'll just, I'll show you the themes that we've got. It's, it's following the, the theme of, of God building his family through marriage, through family, through the family home, through the family rules, through access to dad, through family rest and family gatherings. And we're following these, these seven grand themes, and we're going to look at a trilogy within each of them. All great stories come in trilogies, David's reminded us in, in, in the introduction. Love Lord of the Rings trilogy in that. Two of my personal favorites, you can either judge me or love me, but the Godfather trilogy has to be one of the greatest trilogies of all time. And the, 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 the non-debatable, this is not up for any kind of debate, the best trilogy of all time, Back to the Future. Just say, here we go. Back to the Future trilogy. It is phenomenal in every way. I wanted to be Marty McFly with a skateboard grabbing on the back of a, a car. That's just who I was growing up. Um, but all stories come in, in threes. Great stories come in trilogies. And if you take, as David reminds you, you take one of those and don't look at the others, then actually it doesn't make that much sense. It starts to be a little bit confusing. There's, there's loose ends that haven't been tied up. But we're going to take each of these um, foreshadows we're calling, and we're going to look at them, and then we're going to look at the trilogy underneath each one of them. And so last week, David took marriage, and he unpacked the trilogy that God's working. That is episode one, the God who was. Episode two, the God who is. And episode three, the God who is to come. And so I'm going to look at family this week. Actually, the, the idea that God is building an eternal family. And I just want to say, just as a disclaimer, you may look at this and just think, man, my story looks nothing like that. Wouldn't it have been great to have had marriage and kids and built a family? And, and my story just looks nothing like that. 
Can I tell you, your story does not disqualify you from being invited into God's story. No matter what your experience is, he's inviting you in to say, come and join my story. Come and be part of my family. And so this morning, I wanted to talk around the big idea of it's all about family. So if you've got a Bible, we're going to kind of plant ourselves in Luke 10 as we build this picture of God building his family. I love family. Last week, we looked at marriage, and now family. It's that fun bit that comes after marriage where you get to start making babies. That's the fun bit. Looking after them, not so fun. But we'll go with, we'll go with the fun bit right now. So Luke 10, Luke 10, verse 25, it says, And behold, a lawyer stood up and put him, that's Jesus, to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? What a great question. What do I need to do to get this thing called eternal life? And Jesus said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, ding, 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 correct answer. Well done. You've answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But this lawyer, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, who is my neighbor? Father God, we just thank you as we gather around your word. Lord, I thank you that this is not just a set of principles to live by. This is not just some moral teaching, Lord. This is about a relationship. And Lord, I just ask that wherever we find ourselves in that relationship this morning, that we would be willing right now just to hear your voice. We open our hearts. Will you speak deep into them and change us, transform us to become more like you? Amen. Amen. So Car and I have been married for 10 years. 10 years, 10 years this year, some of you are looking like you have no idea you're even born, 10 years, that was like 15 years ago for us, but 10 years, 10 years on and we've got two kids, um, I've got one of them with me this morning, you'll notice the spiritual side of the family have come to church this morning, me and my son are here, dedicated to Jesus, the heathens of the family, my wife and, Ka- uh, and Bella, they've gone to a ballet rehearsal, I mean what do you do? She's meant to go to three ready for this um, performance that she does with her little ballet group. And we say you can do one of them. And so this is the, the Sunday that she's off with Cara. And they've gone for a little lunch date together and are doing ballet stuff. And she does this performance, which is really cute. It's a cute performance in the sense of like they wear these little te- uh, teepees. No, not tutus. They don't wear teepees. They wear tutus. <laughs> tutus, not teepees. <laughs> yeah. And so they're up on the stage. But the trouble is... This is the reality of it. It's cute, but the reality is this is a two-hour performance with stacks of kids in it, and my daughter's in it for all of four minutes. It is the most boring two hours of my life. Yeah. Oh, yeah, your daughter's really cute. Yeah, fantastic. When's my my words? Come on. And I've got to sit there for two hours for four minutes where I go, oh, isn't she just the most beautiful girl? And it's over, and that's it. See, because I'm more of a home kind of guy. I I, I much prefer just crashing out at home with my family. Sunday afternoons are just a godsend for us. We tend to put on a movie and uh, I've said this in the past but we've got like a little way that we sit in our family. Usually Ruben goes up for a nap uh, and he, he kind of vacates the space and gives us some time to be with Bella and I usually lie down on the sofa. Now I can't I can do it here. Here we go. Let me do it. I lie down on the sofa and we've got big arms to our sofa so they're like that and my, uh, my feet go up on the other end like that and I have a little gap and I say to Bella, sorry for those that have got a horrendous view right now but um, so my feet are up on the arms and I'll say to Bella, Come and jump in your secret spot. And she knows. She <laughs> What's funny about that? 
she knows that her little secret spot, she's the only one that knows, is she jumps and sits in the, in the, uh, the seat-like space that my legs make. So she sits there with her legs under there. And we can sit like that for hours. And we sit and watch a film. She's in a little secret spot. And I'm just sat there. And I tend to drift off to sleep. And we just, connect, we just fit together perfectly. We just fit. Father and daughter, her sat in a secret spot. We're watching a film. And it is just fantastic. We're made to connect. We're made to fit together. See, God has made humanity to be in relationship. He's made humanity to fit together. If we look back in Genesis 1, God creates the heavens and the earth, and there's this progression of God creating, and he stands back and he says, yeah, this is good. This looks really good. This is how it's meant to be. And he says, he then creates man. And he says, and, and, and the scriptures say that God said, let us make man in our image. And it says in Genesis 2, 15, the Lord God took man and put him in the garden to work it and keep it. And the Lord commanded the man saying, you shall surely eat of every tree in the garden, but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in that day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And so God has created this, this man in Adam and he creates this perfect home. And he says, what I'm going to do is I'm, I'm going to stack everything in your favor, but we're going to touch on it in a, another week's time, but there's going to be some boundaries because where there's love, there's boundaries. And so you can have all of the trees except this one. I'm going to stack it all in your favor. Can I just tell you, church, God is still stacking it in our favor. You can have all, of, just not that. Just that one, that one tree I'm asking you not to. And God actually says, instead of uh, Genesis 1 where God is standing back saying, this is all good, this is good, this is good. He, for the first time in scripture, we see God say, but this is not good. And he looks at Adam, and in verse 18 of Genesis 2, the Lord said, it is not good that man should be alone. You see, God has made humanity in his image. Let us make man in our image. Who was God speaking to when he said that? Maybe he's calling over the angels. Maybe he's saying, Gabe, Mikey, come here. Let us make man in our image. But the trouble with that is, and the reason we know that that can't be true is little clue when you're reading scripture. Always interpret scripture by scripture. Always do that. So anything that is complex and really hard to understand, we take verses that we actually understand and we go, okay, let's use that to translate. Uh, uh, okay, I can understand what God's saying. And so we know that God is not talking to the angels because nowhere else in the whole of scripture does it say that the angels were made in the image of God. In fact, something that is reserved for humanity only is that we are unique among creation, that we are made in the image of God. And so we know he's not speaking to the angels. So who's he speaking to? The only logical conclusion is that God's talking to himself. And God is referring to himself in plural terms. So he's not just having a moment of internal dialogue speaking to himself like we do. He's speaking to himself because there is a multiple of himself. And we know from Scripture that in Genesis 1 it says that there was the Father creating and the Spirit hovered over the darkness. And then if you move forward and we read, uh, using Scripture to interpret Scripture, we look at John 1. He says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And we know that John is using this word, Word, to mean Jesus. So actually what we can conclude from reading Scripture is that when God says, let us make man in our image, what he's actually saying is, we are three. But we know, because God says to this nation that we'll look at in a minute where he says, I am the Lord and I am one. Hang on a second, God. You're three, but you're one. So we know Christians, do you know what? If you're a Christian in this place, we don't believe in three gods. We believe in one God, but in three persons. So this is not 
I'm not great at maths, but work with me. This is not one plus one plus one equals three. That's good maths, yeah? You would agree with me? You're looking like I'm trying to trick you. I'm not. One plus one plus one equals three. That's how I learned it anyway. This is actually one times one times one equals one. So this is three, completely separate, completely unique, but completely one. I am the Lord your God and I am one, but here I am going to make you in my image, which is three in one. See, God is in relationship with himself, and therefore he makes humanity in his image to be in relationship. And God looks at Adam, and he sees that he's not in relationship. He sees that he is alone, and he says, it's not good for man to be alone. So he says, I'm going to make a helper for him. So scripture tells us that God puts Adam into this deep sleep. And while he's in this sleep, God, God takes one of Adam's ribs and creates woman. This beautiful picture of connection, this beautiful picture of relationship, of partnership, of one flesh. Can you imagine that moment? I just, I laugh. At, when I read the Bible, I just, I, God is just brilliant. He's got, can you imagine that moment? Man goes to sleep alone and then wakes up and there's a woman next to him. Could you imagine that? Like there's no alcohol involved here. This is like just waking up and there's this beautiful woman and he's like, whoa, man. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is where we get the word woman from. No, it's not. I haven't got, I haven't got time to go into the intricacies. I haven't got time to go into the intricacies of the language, but I think that was an amazing moment where he, because he's just been naming all these animals. This is the stuff I should really be cutting out of the talk. But he's been naming all of these animals, and he sees that they're all in, in relationship with each other, but he's not, and now he is in relationship. He is fully made in the image of God. But then this thing happens where they're tempted to eat of that one tree that God said, don't touch. And they eat of this one tree. And, and this perfection that God has made, this home that he's made for them, it starts to go really wrong before the honeymoon's even over. And as they eat from it, the comfortable life and the security of paradise is no more. Instead, they find themselves on the wrong side of the knowledge of good and evil, and they have to spend their days toiling for food and toiling in relationships as God expels them from this paradise home. And I think that's something that continues to this day, toiling for our food and toiling in relationships. And so outside of Eden, outside of this perfection, Adam and Eve, they, they have their own family and have these two sons, Cain and Abel, but there's no escape from this curse of damaged relationships as Cain kills his younger brother. And then things just go from bad to worse, bad to worse until God says enough is enough. And God says, what I'm going to do is I'm going to send this catastrophic flood and we're going to start again. But he finds one man, Noah and his family that have been righteous, that are righteous in God because they've been stood before God and, that, and they, they have a right relationship with God and they are blameless in his sight because of who God is and who they are in God. And he says, I'm going to give you a fresh start from this man at Noah. And you're going to have a completely fresh start. And some 400 years pass and then we get to this guy called Abraham and we looked at him last week in the marriage um, narrative of this, of this uh, series that we're doing. And episode one of this God building his family really starts to find its feet when we get to Abraham. Cutting a long story short, God promises Abraham land and a family. The trouble is he is homeless and he's childless, but God is faithful to keep his promise. And they have a family, and this family grows, and it becomes known as the nation of Israel, as the Israelites. And through the twists and the turns of this 
amazing family. They get land that God has promised them, and then they start to have these family rules that we'll look at in a few weeks. And God took this nation to be his people, and he would be their God. And there's this beautiful picture in Exodus 19 where God makes a promise to this family, and he says, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And this is episode one of this trilogy of God building his eternal family. One nation under God. This nation of Israel. And God gives them a promise saying, you'll be my treasured possession. But actually with that promise comes a responsibility. You need to be a holy nation. You're my treasured people, but you need to be holy. This word holy just means being different, being set apart. You need to look different to everybody else around you because I, as your God, am different. So God gave this family these rules. And he gave it to them to show them to be different to all the other nations around them. The idea was that this nation of Israel would shine God's glory because they were different. And so if you look and you take time to look at all of the laws that were of the nations around them and then look at the laws of Israel, they were different. They, they stood up for the powerless and the poor in their society. How they conducted business was totally different. In fact, God said, all the other nations around you, they're going to flog themselves for seven days. But what you're going to do is you're going to work for six and you're going to rest on the seventh, but you're going to be an even more productive nation because you're going to reveal the love your God has for you and shine it off to all the other nations around you. And the plan was that they would shine brightly. But sadly, instead of stepping up to this higher standard of living, the Israelites veered off course and if you read like the book of Judges, it is just this decline. And it has this repeating phrase, they did what seemed right in their own eyes. Instead of stepping up to God's standard, they started to step down to what seemed right in their own eyes. And it crashed and it burned. And sadly, their story becomes more like one of EastEnders on steroids. With rape, incest theft, adultery, murder. So just like when my kids step over the boundaries, we have this thing called the thinking step. Go and sit on the thinking step. And it's the bottom step in our house and they'll just sit there for a few minutes and just take a time out and think. Just, just have a think for a minute. It's not that we don't, Cara's told me don't call it the naughty step. We're not, it's modern, but modern parenting. We're not reinforcing bad behavior. We call it the thinking step. <laughs> I always go to the naughty step. And so the kids sit on that thinking step and they take some time out until they've had a chance to think and then we carry on. And God sends Israel to this proverbial thinking step. And he says, I'm going to take you out of the land and you're going to be in exile. You need some time. And then we'll be able to carry on. See, one of the major problems with episode one is that when we create a set of rules, humanity has two tendencies. This is the tendency within each one of us that we create these rules and we either do one of two things. We either fail to keep those laws. And what then happens is we disqualify ourselves. I'm just not good enough. Or we get really good at keeping those laws and we elevate ourselves. Yeah, I'm better than everybody else because I can do that and they can't. And this kind of thinking is what had seeped in to the nation of Israel. Instead of it being something where they shine God's light to all the world around them, they started to lift themselves up and say, look, we're completely different. We are the insiders. You're the outsiders. It's funny, when we tell Reuben off, I mean, you, you, you look at Reuben, he's like, he's nearly two and he doesn't speak very much, but he gets it all. 
He, he, he understands it all. You, the parents of young kids, and you remember your young kids, you're like, yep, they understand. They can't speak, but they know exactly what's going on right now. So it's funny, when we're telling Ruben, we're like, Ruben, no. Ruben. Ruben, no. Go and sit on the thinking steps. Have some time out. It's funny how Bella will always join in. Yeah, Ruben, you shouldn't have done that. <laughs> go and sit. Ruben, go and sit on the thinking. Now you need a timeout. Go and sit on the th- And I'm looking at Bella. I'm going, Bella, he learned how to do that from you. Don't take the moral high ground. But we so easily, don't we, when, when somebody else is failing in something, we're like, yeah, I don't struggle with that. Look at me. I've got it all perfect. I understand all of this stuff. Got it nailed down. I'm like, yeah, but a few hours ago, you hadn't got it nailed down. And we start to raise up and think we're superior. And that's what started to happen with Israel. Instead of loving their neighbors, they started to prove themselves as superior in every way. And so I'm going to move on to episode two, where I just really want us to, to ground ourselves for the next 15 minutes. We will, I promise. So episode two gets started underway, and, um, uh, and we, we, we're well into episode two when this Jewish lawyer comes and approaches Jesus. And you need to remember that the thinking of this Jewish lawyer is one of superiority. We, we are God's chosen. We, we've got this thing nailed. We, we are the insiders. And so the trouble with when you're an insider is you need to define who else is inside. So this lawyer comes to Jesus and he's saying, look, uh, um, I need to know how I get this thing called eternal life. I need the security of this thing called eternal life. How do I get it? And Jesus says, you're a lawyer. You've always got the right answer. You know, come on, you've got it. You're a lawyer. And so the lawyer says, okay, yeah, I understand it. I'm an expert in the law. I'm going to boil it down. And it says, love God and love others. Yeah, you've got that right. But the trouble with that is, and I can deal with black and white rules, but the trouble is when you say love God, got that, but love others, love my neighbor, hang on, there's too many shades of gray in there. I can cope when it's black and white, but what about shades of gray? And when you live in that place of superiority, the trouble with that is that when you're looking at insiders and outsiders, you're saying, well, my neighbors are going to be those that are on the inside. So you need to help me define who are on the inside and who are on the outside, because if those are on the outside, I don't have to love them like I love myself. But if we're on the inside, then I've got to love them. And that was the challenge that was going through this lawyer as he said, define my neighbor. It's interesting, isn't it? How do we define our neighbor? How do we define our family? How do we define those that are on inside and those that are on the outside? The person directly next door? The person across the street? Yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll push that and say they're our neighbor. What about the country right next door? What about that culture that's completely different to yours with other traditions? They don't eat what you eat. They don't look like you look. Hang on, what about those people that vote for a different party to me? Oh, I voted Brexit, they vote Remain. Oh, we're not neighbors. No way are we neighbors. Put up a placard and declare it and everything. They're not like me. God had given this family uh, an outward symbol. Why he didn't ask them to get a crew cut, I had no idea. But he did this thing called circumcision. And he said, you're going to look completely different. And this idea of circumcision was that outwardly, you are going to reveal that you are completely different to those people around you. But what happened was separation. Look, I'm, I'm on the inside. I, I can prove it. But you're on the outside. You're not allowed on the inside. Therefore, you're not my neighbor. Therefore, I do not have to love you like I do myself. But the problem is that episode two is seeing a bit of a shift. Instead of being one nation under God, we're beginning to see a shift in episode two. And this is going to become Jewish insiders and non-Jewish outsiders. As God starts to, to deepen that shadow, 
make that shadow a little bit darker as it gets closer to him. And we're going to become one in Christ. And if we look at Paul, he writes in Ephesians 2. I, just, I read this in the message and I thought Eugene Peterson just did a beautiful job with it. He says, the, mess, the Messiah has made things up between us so that we're now together on this. Both non-Jewish outsiders and Jewish insiders. He tore down the wall. We used to keep each other at a distance. He repealed the law code and has become so clogged up with fine print and footnotes that it hindered more than it helped. Then he started over. Instead of continuing with two groups of people separated by centuries of animosity and suspicion, he created one new kind of human being, a fresh start for everyone. You see, episode two is this one new man under God. One new kind of human being. We can all be insiders now. We can all be on equal standing. This is not about one nation, but each of us making an individual choice as we stand before God to say, yes, I will stand under you. I will surrender to you. For the Jews, this meant that the one they'd been waiting for, the one in whom all the law and the prophets were pointing towards, the Messiah, it is Jesus. And for those non-Jews, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, Paul writes. You're now insiders. Not by birthright, but because of your adoption into the family. See, this is like a marriage. Cara and I, when we got married, I didn't suddenly become Cara. Cara didn't suddenly become me. We didn't change our identity. Something more beautiful happened. Cara stayed uniquely Cara, and I stayed uniquely me, but we became one. Completely unique, yet one. That's the picture of what Paul is saying here. See, I've had the privilege of, of, of traveling around the world, seeing what God is doing. And I've had the privilege of sitting with Pakistani Jesus followers in Pakistan as they sing to Jesus. And they sing their songs that I don't understand. And they keep parts of their tradition, which is all the women were sat on one side, all the men were sat on the other. I've even had the privilege of sitting with, with, with those that have now come to believe what the Bible says about Jesus that were Muslim. Keeping their traditions keeping their upbringing, who they are is fundamental to their identity, but they love Jesus and they follow Jesus and they accept who Jesus is. We can so easily in the West fall into this trap that Christianity has to look and sound the same. And it was the trap the Jews fell into. This, these these non-Jews, because the early, the early Christians were all Jewish, so these non-Jews start joining. They're like, do we need to circumcise them? Is that what we need to do so we all look the same? We can't blame the Jews. We're the same. The same failings fall on us in episode two if we're not careful. And we say, oh, no, no, to be Christian means we've got to sing Hillsong. If you're belting out Bethel, then you're a true follower of Jesus. If you've got skinny jeans or you're wearing Jesus sandals, then you're a Christian. <laughs> What's most amazing about this story, what I love about God's story is that it can be read in every language, expressed through every culture, and transform every generation. You do not need to learn a new language. In fact, what God says is, I'll bring it to you in your language. Because what we fundamentally believe about God is that he's incarnational. What that means is he gets down and dirty in the real stuff of life with flesh on. He comes into your world. Doesn't expect you to, to be something completely different. He says in episode two, actually what it's going to be is about you being uniquely you. And I'm going to use that because you being uniquely you is you being created as I intended you to be. And you are going to reach the people that I've called you to reach when you are uniquely you. And I can work in and through you. Careful because I'm going to start preaching. Do they need to be circumcised? Thank the Lord, 
no. And that is coming from a grateful heart. And for this lawyer who approaches Jesus, his mentality is that I'm one of the insiders. But as I've said, you, you can't blame him for that. We're the same. And we're the same, let me tell you like this. As I was trying to illustrate this, I was thinking, do you know what, in the church we do this. And I need to wrap this up really, really quickly. We do this all the time because we, we have this phrase called loving with the love of the Lord. And if you've been in church any length of time, what this phrase means is there's some people in church that I love because I'm probably quite similar to them. I'm not talking about me. This is the proverbial we before you start judging me. There's those that we really love and, uh, and those that we get on with and we agree. Uh, we call ourselves friends. But then on the other side, there's those that I have to love with the love of the Lord means I probably don't agree with them, don't get on with them, they annoy me, but I'm, I've got to love them because we have to love each other. So I'll love them with the love of the Lord. Bless you in Jesus' name. I hope I don't see you again today. And we love them with the love of the Lord, meaning I don't really love you, but I know I've got to, so I'll just fake it. But the trouble is this story that Jesus goes on to tell blows that theory out of the water. He says, if that's the kind of love that you're showing towards Jesus, that you have missed the point completely. Because Jesus goes on and he tells about this man who was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among robbers, who was stripped and beat him and departed. This is Jesus now talking to the Jewish lawyer in episode two of this grand story. Leaving him half dead, verse 31 of Luke 10, it says, Now by chance a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him pass by on the other side... So likewise, a Levite, he came to the place and saw him pass by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and then he saw him. At this point that Jesus is telling this story, there would have been a collective gasp for all those Jewish people that were hearing it. <gasps> a Samaritan. This, this Jewish man has been half, beaten up half dead on the side of the road. Now a Samaritan has come. He's fully dead. There's no way he's going to survive. The Samaritans and the Jews, they did not get on. They were, they were enemies of each other. He's dead now. He's gone. There's no way. But hang on. Where's Jesus going with this? Jesus referencing this shift from episode one to episode two. Instead of it being one nation under God, God is going to choose humanity that accept and love him to display his love, even a Samaritan. Even those considered the bottom of the pile can accept all that Jesus has done for them and they can be used by God to shine his light, to reveal his love. See, the man in this story has been beaten up by life's journey. He is half dead on the journey. From Jerusalem to Jericho, he lies half dead. On the journey of life, so many are laying half dead. All oh, they can do really well on the outside of looking like they've got it all together, but their soul is dead. By very definition, they are half dead. They're beaten up on the side of the road. And this Levite and this priest, that that represent the law, they, all they can do is walk past and state you're half dead. Because you see, all the law can do is reveal the state that we're in. The law can't save you. No, we need one that will come. One that will come and trade places with us. One that will come and stand in the gap. One that will come and rescue us. And so the Samaritan, he turns up. And this lawyer has been asking, who is my neighbor? But actually, Jesus says, let me prove to you the one who actually starts being neighborly. Start being neighborly. Church, we get so focused on who's inside and outside of this thing that we call Christianity, we forget to be a neighbor. Oh, are they saved? Are they washed in the blood? Are they really believe, you know, they call themselves a Christian, but I'm not sure about it. 
Don't start judging. Can I just say, church, we're going to put a veto on judging other people's salvation because that's the domain of God. Oh, we can, when people, let me just clarify, when people come in and are part of this family, oh, we're called to love each other enough to call out some behavior stuff, absolutely. But salvation is God's domain. And I think there's going to be some real surprises in eternity. So we're not going to judge people's salvation because that is the role of Jesus. And here, here we have the, inside, the outsider becoming the insider. Those that are completely different, being set apart. And we fall into this trap of finding ways and methods of determining who's in and who's, who's out. Are they truly saved? Come on, church, we need to get busy loving and caring for each other. We need to get really, really busy being preoccupied with accepting one another no matter what we get up to. It's really funny because I think as the church we can get so worried that the world and the church and all other people start looking at us going, well, if you accept the worst in society, then clearly you approve them. And we're like, oh, we can't be seen to approve the worst. So we kind of like, I'm going to keep a discipline. We'll love them with the love of the Lord. Bless you in Jesus' name, but we're going to stand over here. maybe I'm risking it for a biscuit, but I don't care what the other churches think. I don't care what other people say. If I start loving the least and the lost and, and accepting the people in this world that the world has rejected and everyone says, oh yeah, but you must approve of their behavior. If that's what you think, fantastic. I'm not really into that conversation. I just want to accept them because you know what? I know a God, I know a God who came in the form of Jesus who ate with the worst who associated with the worst, who said, you know what, I I don't actually really care what you think as the religious leaders about whether I'm approving of their behavior or not. I'm going to accept them because God accepts them. And so church, can we actually lose the, the baggage that says, oh, if I care enough, it might mean that people think I condone. Can we lose that baggage and just get busy doing what Jesus has called us to do, which is care? We're a family. We're the family of God. Jesus carries this story on, and he says, the Samaritan went to him and bound up his wounds. Wow. The very one who should have finished him off. Didn't care about what got him in that state. Then he sent him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave it to the innkeeper, saying, take care of him, and whatever you, more you spend, I will pay when I come back. Ian, can you just come and play? Because it has hit 12 o'clock and I need to lull these beautiful people into thinking I'm finishing. Five minutes. Can I just have five minutes? Is that okay? And then we're going to stand and sing and then we can get out and enjoy the sun. Is that all right? Which is kind of overcast now, but we believe in Jesus' name it will come out again. Jesus tells, see, Jesus really should have finished this story at the point when he says the Samaritan bandages his wounds. That would be a great little EastEnders finishing. Wow. Oh, my goodness me. That's incredible. The Samaritan helped the, the half-dead Jewish man. That's, uh, that would have been a great ending. But he carries it on. And he tells of this inn. See, these inns were real places, long journeys that were safe havens for travelers that felt like they were at risk of losing their life or you know, it was coming to nighttime and it was dangerous to travel that journey so they would stay in these inns along the journey. Church, I just wonder if this inn is a little picture of the church. These safe havens along the journey of life that can do so well at beating us up. See, the good Samaritan got down off his horse, traded places with the half-dead man, puts the half-dead man up on the horse and they journey to this place of safety. Beginning to see a picture of Jesus who takes our place on the cross. Everything that we deserve, we trade places, and he takes us to that place of safety called the family of God.
I just wonder if that's something we could be. And instead of getting so preoccupied with, well, how did this man find himself in this state? Just before I start helping him, just before I spend myself upon him, was this his actions or somebody else? Oh, it was somebody else's actions. That's okay. I, I can cope with that because if it was his actions that got him in this mess, then I'm sorry, we, we need to start with some corrective teaching first. No. The innkeeper, he's not perfect himself. I can tell you these in, the innkeepers that looked after these inns, they were far from being perfect. Church, we are not perfect enough to take the moral high ground. We can love each other enough to say, maybe that's going to hurt you. But I'm not judging. I'm loving and I'm caring. And I'm going to get you so close to Jesus. Because you know what? The thing happens when we get so close to Jesus. Stuff starts to shift and priorities start to change. And the stuff we were doing doesn't seem so appealing anymore. Jesus is far better at this thing called discipleship than we ever could be. He says, will you take care of this man until I come back? And whatever you spend on him, I will repay you. Oh, what a picture of the church. What a picture of the family. That we can spend our time, our energy, our finances, our resources on caring. And Jesus says, I will repay you when I return. I will repay you. Why? Because you are investing in the kingdom. And any investment into the kingdom is not a bad investment. It will be repaid. See, I see this story and I just think, wow. What a privilege we get, church. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. Classic hymn. We get to be a foretaste of glory divine. Because you see, out of episode two comes this glorious picture of episode three. So we've had one nation under God, one new man under God, and now we have a multitude under God. And we look in Revelation and Paul, uh, sorry, John writes in Revelation is he has this glimpse of the family of God before the throne of God in Revelation 7. He says, after this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation. Notice we still have a sense of identity of who we are. Every nation from all tribes and all people and all language standing before the throne and before the Lamb clothed in white. There we will be perfect with palm branches in hand and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and unto the Lamb. This is the picture of the family of God into all of eternity that we get the privilege of being but a faltering, shameful foreshadow, trying as best we can right now to say we are going to love. We are going to care. For those that look like us, those that don't look like us, those that are lost, those that are found, those that are found, those that are lost. We will care enough and not a moment of it is wasted. Because he will repay. Church, maybe that inn is a picture of who we could be. Maybe we could care enough to be not known by who we approve, but instead of who we accept. Not for what we condone or who we condone, but who we care about. Some of you in this place are fathers to kids that are not yours, some of you are mothers. Some of you are brothers and sisters to people in this room. Biologically speaking, no. Spiritually speaking, yes, in every sense. Maybe you've longed for kids. You've longed for that partner. 
Church, community is where it happens. Where we, we are caring for kids and we're loving the least. We're embracing the lost. We're bandaging their wounds. This world is hemorrhaging. It is half dead. And God says, where are the people that are going to care enough to spend themselves on them? Church, if we've truly accepted the love of God, of who he is in our life, then we've been overwhelmed by a good, good father. And we're called to radically display the ever-faithful, overwhelming, never-ending, reckless love of a good, good father into this world. As we try and build on earth as it is in heaven, this multitude. So church, we're going to stand and our response now is going to be a standing and singing. And we're not just singing lyrics on a screen. We're singing truth about our God. We're singing truth about who he is. And my prayer is, and I would ask you to invite yourself to be praying this prayer right now as we sing this truth about who God is, that actually it would get deep into our souls and impact how we love those around us. Church, that we would be the family of God. So Ian, thank you. Will you lead us?